Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he made his promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. This is the word of the Lord. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. And joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. It was a worship war. His music ignited controversy. One pastor wrote of his music, there are several reasons for opposing it, which reminds me of what my mother-in-law said when I first asked for permission to marry Amy. I digress. He said, there are several reasons for opposing it. One, it's too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scene, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. When this Young man found the catalog of hymns to be unhelpful for worship. He spoke of writing his own texts to update the ones sung in churches. And it's reported that his own father told him, that old hymnal was good enough for your grandfather and for your father, and so I reckon it will have to be good enough for you. Now what would you expect from a rebel like Isaac Watts? The author of texts such as, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? when I survey the wondrous cross and joy to the world. With wild contemporary songs like that, he was just asking for trouble, wasn't he? As we look back, it is funny to think that people extended such criticisms to the writer of hymns that have become so beloved over time. Do you ever wonder how the people who first connected with Isaac Watts's music felt when they were told that their praise was utterly inappropriate? Fortunately, History has given us people of such character that in spite of the controversy and criticism that surrounded them, they still introduced joyful and enduring songs to the world. 
We'll spend time with a couple of controversial artists and their songs today. And that leads to our first lesson from this morning. Every old favorite was once a new song. Every old favorite was once a new song. In the mid-1500s, reformer John Calvin influenced much of the Protestant church to believe that singing metered psalms was the only inspired form of musical worship. That was it. Only the word of God himself was an acceptable musical offering in worship. Now, Watts' family was nonconformist, which means that they were Protestant Christians not participating in the Anglican Church of the time, otherwise known as the Church of England at the time. Watts was definitely a child prodigy, writing verses as early as seven years old. He turned down a scholarship at a very Church of England-influenced Oxford to attend a nonconformist academy. He came home from the academy and composed his first hymn at the age of 20, and Watts went on to compose 800 hymns, many of which were composed between those two years after his very first. I don't know what you were doing between the ages of 20 and 21, but I was not writing timeless hymns of praise. His critics were vocal. How could someone be so irreverent in composing uninspired hymns? Watts' response. If we can pray to God in sentences that we have made up ourselves, instead of confining ourselves to the Our Father and other prayers taken directly from the Scriptures, then surely we can sing to God in sentences that we have made up ourselves. And though the Psalms foreshadowed Jesus, he wanted to write in a way that supposed King David had met and known Jesus and wrote about him in song. As David's encounters with God inspired new song upon new song, Watts was serving as a bit of a psalmist for his day, providing simple and beautiful descriptions of God's part in bringing about new joy, new grace, and new mercies, partly through Watts' own experiences. Watts' health started to fail around his 29th year, and a high fever in 1712 caused his health to decline rapidly. But in 1719, 200 years ago this year, he sat under a tree at Abney Estate near London, where he lived, and composed a song of joy with the birth of our Savior. That leads to our second lesson. The call to joy is a scriptural command. The call to joy is a scriptural command. With this song, music credits are often given to Handel since Lowell Mason adapted segments of his songs Glory to God and Comfort My People from Handel's Messiah somewhere between 1836 and 1848 to create the tune Antioch, which is what we most often use for the singing of joy to the world. It probably holds its title as the most published Christmas hymn in North America. The poetic lyrics, however, first showed up in a collection called Psalms of David Imitated, And this particular song is a paraphrase of the 98th Psalm. And I'm just going to read to you the verses of this psalm. Sing a new song to the Lord, for he has done wonderful deeds. His right hand has won a mighty victory. His holy arm has shown his saving power. The Lord has announced his victory and revealed his righteousness to every nation. He has remembered his promise to love and be faithful to Israel. The ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Break out in praise and sing for joy. Sing your praises to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and melodious song, with trumpets and the sound of the ram's horn. Make a joyful symphony before the Lord, the King. 
Let the sea and everything in it shout his praise. Let the earth and all living things join in. Let the rivers clap their hands in glee. Let the hills sing out their songs of joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with fairness. At the end of each verse of Joy to the World, we hear these verses being repeated and that's called fuguing, which is where vocal parts enter in in rapid succession, repeating often the same words. For example, repeat the sounding joy. That's fuguing. This song is of great joy, born from pain and born into controversy. The controversy came from the initial rejection of Watts's revolutionary and passionate musical style. Pastors were fired over this. Churches divided over this and arguments proliferated, all because Watts paraphrased scripture in praise. Controversy. The pain came from illness. From being a short and pale man with a skinny frame and a large head based on descriptions that we read of Isaac Watts. Though he was clearly a brilliant and creative man, he was a failure in love. Fellow poet Elizabeth Singer admired Watts' words and desired to meet him, but once they met and Isaac proposed marriage, Singer responded, If only I could say that I admire the casket as much as I admire the jewel it contains. That's a fancy way of saying you've got a beautiful inside, Isaac, but you ugly. Things like that don't exactly translate to happy thoughts, and yet Watts wrote with such gratitude and wonder and joy. That leads to our third lesson. Joy remembers, experience, and anticipates God's faithfulness. Joy remembers, and experiences, and anticipates God's faithfulness. There's another song we honor around this time every year that's born in pain and controversy. It's called the Magnificat, Mary's song, Magnifying God, where through God's grace, the invisible and unapparent were viewed through a lens that makes the unseen large and close. Mary responded, how I praise the Lord. My soul praises the Lord. How I rejoice in God, my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And now generation after generation will call me blessed. For he, the mighty one, is holy and has done great things for me. In Mary's day, it was customary to have betrothals that once a woman is able to conceive a child, many young fiancés in these arrangements were 12 or 13 years old and given in marriage to men much older because they would have a means of supporting and providing for their family. Now, we're uncertain of Mary's age and scripture is silent on the matter. And though pregnancy at such a young age would be absolutely controversial and inappropriate in our context... If she were a very young mother, that would have been simply customary in her time. Here is the controversy for Mary. She became pregnant while betrothed, which is like being engaged, but before she was to experience any of the conjugal benefits of marriage. That was very much an issue of family pride and shame around 1 BC. And because the angel who told Mary about her pregnancy mentioned that her cousin Elizabeth was also expecting Mary made a visit to the hill country of Judea, a place known as Ein Kerem, which is about 12 kilometers or 7.5 miles to Bethlehem. Perhaps Mary was hiding out, letting things cool down so that the controversy might settle a bit back home. Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist, who we learned about more last week. 
John was filled with the Holy Spirit before birth. We read in Luke chapter 1, 41 and 42, at the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Now, Elizabeth was older at this time. Nothing about carrying a child at Elizabeth's advanced age was easy. Probably nobody, I'm sorry, probably everybody in Nazareth is spilling some tea about Mary and her unexpected pregnancy, and she probably knew it. In the midst of all this controversy and difficulty, these women identified God's favor and blessing. His mercy goes on from generation to generation, Mary sings, to all who fear him. His mighty arm does tremendous things, how he scatters the proud and haughty ones. He has taken princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. As we listen, we hear some really good news. God is not restricted by our talent, our abilities, our resources, our power, or lack thereof. God will use the simple and humble and willing, and God will astound us. We had some friends in a previous community who didn't have a church home. The family had many connections in the church who had been inviting them for years to try and get them to come. These folks were prominent people. The ones inviting were influential people in the eyes of the world. These were some powerful folks. The family was reluctant to come. Then one day, our oldest daughter invited a friend to come, and the whole family showed up. All these connections in the church came up to us at a certain point and asked what it is that we did. What sort of magic did we use to entice this family to come? Well, God unleashed a super special secret weapon, a sweet and hopeful grade schooler. Surprise. Simple, humble, and faithful. In Mary's time, Israel was expecting a warrior king who had been born in a palace. The Messiah would have all the best comforts and training and heritage. This would be the anointed one to come and overthrow the Roman occupation like the heroes of old. But the key to this whole story is so different. It came down to this. In verse 38, we read how Mary responded to the angel's news. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you said about me come true. And then the angel left. The kingdom of God is so much more about having a ready heart, a heart that's willing and obedient, than about having pedigrees or power or prosperity. Mary received confirmation from Elizabeth that she is carrying the Son of God, that she is favored. Do you think she could have sent a registry list with Gabriel to pick up some stuff from Angels R Us? Maybe a body pillow, any pillow, a boppy, maybe some baby Einstein DVDs. No. Instead of thinking about her needs, thinking about herself, Mary sings of joy for God's mercy to the forgotten. How he has helped his servant Israel. He has not forgotten his promise to be merciful. For he promised our ancestors, Abraham and his children, to be merciful to them forever. Mary had plenty of things to think about. Her own troubles what was probably going to be an awkward relationship with Joseph for a bit, the judgment of others, the pending labor and delivery. But Mary was thinking outward. 
Mary was thinking so much bigger. She had an undeniably difficult circumstance, but now she had a much greater mission in mind. Depending on who's doing the translating, the phrase, he who has a why can live, (laughs) he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. It can either be attributed to Viktor Frankl or Friedrich Nietzsche. If you know the why, you can handle the how. We can sometimes get upset and fractured about little things. We may miss the bigger picture and all that's at stake. But joy comes from seeing a great grace on the other side of purposeful sacrifice and hardship. Mary could withstand controversy and hardship and pain. But God was introducing salvation into the whole of creation through Mary. She would do her part. She trusted God to this point, trusted God that moment, and she looked ahead to the incredible things that God was about to do. Maybe we'd like to experience more joy this Christmas. If we do, we'd find ourselves blessed. We just recognize in this moment God's blessing for us. We count them. We remember our blessings. We experience them in the moment. We anticipate God's ongoing faithfulness. We get to keep ourselves ready. It's much more about having a willing and humble heart than just about anything else that we bring to the table. When God gives us an opportunity to carry Jesus to someone, we let it be, just as God has promised. And we get to focus ourselves outward. When we understand that Jesus has a mission that's so much more than our own comfort and our preferences, a mission of salvation, of justice, of healing and comfort, and restoration, forgiveness, and love, when we focus on sharing those gifts of God, joy increases in our hearts, and joy spreads to the whole world. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are so thankful that out of these songs of controversy, we get to experience enduring joy. We are thankful for the sacrifice that was made to share good news with us. We're grateful that willing and humble hearts through centuries, simple people who are desiring to be faithful to you would be able to share with us news of hope and salvation. We ask that you would use us in those same ways, that through humility, by offering ourselves to share good news with others, that you would allow joy to increase and spread in our hearts and amongst all those we meet. We thank you. We love you and we praise you. All in Christ's name. Amen.